you know, the process of education itself and its associated books and curricular materials necessarily and by design transmits not only the values of society, but also whose space it is. Hi, I'm Clémentine Vanifontaire. I'm an assistant professor of economics at the University of Toronto, and this is Inequality Talks. Angelia Dukia is an assistant professor at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago and a research fellow at the NBER. She's the faculty director and co-founder of the Me Lab. Her research interests are in education, development and labor economics. She's interested in understanding how to reduce inequalities such that children from historically disadvantaged backgrounds have equal opportunities to fully develop their potential. She examines how the provision of basic needs, such as safety, health, justice, and representation, can increase school participation and improve child outcomes in developing contexts. She spoke to me about her most recent research project, in which she investigates representation in children's books. Welcome, Anjali. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you so much for having me today. It's a privilege. I heard that you started this podcast for your students, which is so cool. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it gave me the opportunity to talk with many great people. So I'm really happy about that. And I'm excited to talk about your own study uh, and your own work. And uh, before we start, I wanted to ask you, so in this work, you study representation and diversity in children's book. But I first wanted to ask you why you think inequality in representation matters, because we tend to focus in economics on inequality of outcomes, wealth, opportunities. So why do you think this dimension is really important? Yeah, I have joked that this is a project that I've wanted to do since I was a kid. I obviously didn't know that I would be a researcher then, of course, but I did know that I didn't see myself represented in the world around me. My parents immigrated from India and I... You know, a girl with dark brown skin and a name that my classmates and teachers couldn't pronounce. You know, um, I was born in rural Ohio in a small town with very few kids of color. And, you know, when I went to gas stations and they had the mini license plates, they never had my name in TV shows or books. There was maybe one female character and much more rarely any, you know, character of color. And, um, you know, it seemed like people's imaginations limited what they thought my potential could be. And so, you know, why does representation matter? You know, and we think about especially like the process of education um, or schooling, um, you know, the process of education itself and its associated books and curricular materials necessarily and by design transmits not only the values of society, but also whose space it is. Thus, when the books that we show to children act as windows on a systemically unjust world, They can only mirror those values back to children who then learn to view themselves and others through the lens of those same biases, which can then in turn shape subconscious defaults. You know, and even in a world where publishers seem to be tuned into this issue, there is still a wide gap in representation. You know, there's a lot of work, you know, to be done. And taking it even further, perhaps some publishers don't even realize that there is a problem. Or they recognize that there's a problem and they don't know how to address it or they lack the practical tools to systematically identify inclusionary materials. And, you know, even in our work, we see that even with the best intentions, books that explicitly center historically excluded identities still have room to grow. 
And uh, talking about really the key materials you use to, to conduct this analysis, one key aspect of your research is the impressive data collection effort you undertook. And can you tell us about how you initiated that and what is exactly in your database? Sure. So, you know, taking a step back, it was several years ago um, now that my colleague Alex Ebley and I were talking and it turned out that we had both been studying these questions in complementary ways. And so we said, oh, we should work together. And so we began working with some students to help us explore some of these different threads about how to measure representation and its impacts on children's beliefs and actions, which is when we met Emily Harrison, who was just starting a gra as a graduate student. And she's another co-author on this project. You know, but it's hard. How is it that you measure representation systematically? You know, representation has two important aspects. It both includes whether identities are represented. So, you know, a numerical accounting, you might say. And it also includes how identities are portrayed. You know, so are people depicted in their full humanity? Traditional content analysis involves humans coding each book page by page. And while you can measure simple and complex messages this way, It is a very labor-intensive process, and you are necessarily limited to a smaller sample size, and we need a tremendous amount of people resources to analyze large bodies of content. But we knew that there had been recent advances in artificial intelligence that could help with this problem. So we connected with computer scientists um, Hakizawami Barali Ranesha and Theodora Sass to try to leverage, develop, and apply tools from computer vision, which helps with analysis of images, and natural language processing, which helps with analysis of text to help measure the representation in children's content systematically. And so then, you know, we have this amazing larger research team um, from which we created what's called the Me Lab, where we work to understand messages, identity, and inclusion in education. Now, AI allows for these rapid, scalable, consistent measurements over a large body of text. It's a relatively trivial difference between analyzing 100 pages versus 100,000 pages. You know, and it's much easier for a computer compared to an individual human to quickly measure simpler forms of representation, such as whether people of different backgrounds are represented or present in, in whatever the content is. But it's much harder or less likely to deeply capture the nuance and depth of how people are depicted. And this is important because you might have a book that has a large number of people from historically excluded backgrounds present, but if they're portrayed in a stereotypical or reductive manner, then that could be counterproductive. Um, and it's also important, very, very important to note that artificial intelligence necessarily reflects the biases of the humans who coded the data, you know, who trained the models. But the same problem arises for traditional content analysis conducted by individuals with individual humans because they're bringing their own biases. And so, you know, we are very clear to say that these approaches are complementary and are each important to gathering a more holistic understanding of the representation um, in the content that we give children. We chose to examine a highly influential set of books in children's lives in the United States, those that won awards recognized by the Association of, for Library Service to Children, which is a division of the American Library Association. And we divided them into two primary collections. There was a set of what we call mainstream books, which com were comprising the Newberry and Caldecott Award winners. These are the oldest children's book awards in the U.S. Some people say in the world, but, you know, we certainly know that for the U.S. And books that receive this recognition are not only considered to essentially enter 
the canon of children's literature appearing frequently in U.S. school classrooms, libraries, and even in people's homes. But we also see that they are twice as likely to get checked out from a major library system as other children than, than other children's books. So kids are much more likely to be exposed to the messages that are contained in these books. We created a second collection comprising books recognized for explicitly centering and highlighting the experiences of people from excluded identities, which we call the diversity collection. These include those such as the Coretta Scott King Awards, which are meant to highlight the African-American experience, and the Stonewall Awards, which highlight LGBTQ experiences and others. And this set of books both provide us with a potential upper bound of what we might expect to see in terms of representation of those typically marginalized. They also provide an understanding of how much such books account for intersectionality. La minute technique. So uh, the core of your empirical analysis is trying to classify these characters based on their race, their gender, their citizenship, whether they are famous characters. So I wanted to ask you if you could give us the intuition behind this classification exercise you are doing on this very large data set. Yeah, we are super excited about developing a set of pipelines that can help people convert images into data, um, you know, especially leveraging the knowledge that the computer scientists have and trying to translate it into what social scientists can potentially use. And so to begin with, you know, we have to figure out how do we detect the faces and images. And so we trained a model to detect the faces. But this is a particular challenge in children's books because the vast majority of the images are illustrated, which means that they're artwork or drawings, you know, of some sort. But the state of the art face detection models that are out there have been trained on photographs. And so they are much less likely to detect the faces in, in our books. So, you know, we've trained this model. We then take the detected faces and we classify the different features, including skin color, race, gender and age. And this is where the advantages of AI come into play. What can computers do better than what individual humans can do? Detect skin color. You know, what one skin color is, is actually a bit of a philosophical question. You know, is it what's in the shadows? Is it what's in the light? You know, when we asked a set of humans to manually code skin color, there was very little consistency across the raters. You know, if you remember the black and blue versus white and gold dress that people were like, well, which one is it? You know, humans are attuned to all the different, you know, features and the environment, whereas a computer, you know, can take the detected face, classify the perceptual tint of the RGB values of every single pixel. You know, what we do is we then cluster them into nearby colors um, using something called k-means clustering and then take a weighted average to give an average perceptual tint of the skin color of the face uh, or the facial area that we've identified. And in this study, we use a pixel-based approach, which helps to mitigate the human bias when classifying skin color. But in ongoing work, we extend this and then take a more data-driven, deep learning approach to classify skin colors, which goes beyond the pixel-based measure. And you know, one other thing is, you know, especially for people who are interested in, in this world, The world of image analysis in the social sciences is wide open for researchers. There are so many opportunities for innovation and exploration, and I am really excited to see others enter this space and to see all the creative directions that people take it. 
That's fascinating. So um, could you tell us about what are the main trends, what are the key results that you, uh, that you found when you conducted systematically this analysis on these very large amount of books? Yeah, so we see that, you know, there are more characters with darker skin that are depicted over time. Um, but the mainstream collection is more likely to depict characters with lighter skin um, compared to the diversity collection, even when conditioning on race. And what I mean by that is for faces classified as a given race, those faces of that classified race are likely to be lighter in skin color in the mainstream collection than faces of that same classified race in the diversity collection. Um, we see that Black and Latinx people are underrepresented in the images in the text relative to their share in the U.S. population. Um, so we also, you know, we are saying nothing about optimal representation. It's just that we, we match to, you know, population shares in the U.S. just as a benchmark because people are often interested Um, we see that white males are overrepresented relative to their share of the U.S. population, and they're more likely to be represented overall, no matter what the data source, whether you look at just pronouns or other gendered words, character names, famous figures, geographic representation, images. Um, you know, we see that when, par when, when characters are not from the United States or Europe, they're much more likely to be male. Um, when we combine text analysis and image analysis, we see that females are more likely to be represented in images than in text over time, which is consistent with the maxim that women should be seen but not heard. And this suggests that there may be symbolic inclusion in pictures without substantive inclusion in the actual story. What was also surprising was that there are more adults than children depicted in the images and text of these books even more than their share in the U.S. population, even though these books are targeted towards children. So again, we're saying nothing about optimal representation, but, you know, for those who are trying to decide what should the optimal representation be, you could imagine for a set of children's books that perhaps they should be more child-focused or child-centered. And I think the, the most pernicious result, to me at least, Uh, was that we saw that children are more likely to be depicted with lighter skin than adults, even though there is no clear reason why this should systematically be the case across all of the collections. And this is especially concerning given the implications of Black children being treated as if they are older than they are, the notions of equating childhood with innocence, and then in this case, it's connecting lightness or whiteness with innocence. You know, what are the implicit and explicit messages being sent here? said one of the key contributions of your work is to try to combine text analysis and uh, image analysis and I wanted to ask you what you thought based on this experience working on this project what were the key value added and the key challenges when you're trying to combine together these, these types of data sets yeah so in this particular study we are looking at them somewhat separately. Like we're first, what we wanted to start with is just, let's just develop the tools. Let's see if we can take these tools that computer scientists have worked really hard to develop 
and how can we apply them to social science questions? And people have done that with natural language processing, with text, um, but they really haven't done it as much with images. And so, you know, especially on the image front, a lot of the work that we've had to do is not just taking things that are off the shelf or established methods, but much more actually developing our own and trying to adapt them to this setting. And so in, in the next stages of this work, what we really want to do is figure out how is it that we can um, connect, you know, whatever the images on a page may be, how do they then interact with the text that are on that page? And so, you know, combining these language vision models. Um, but we first wanted to make sure that we were more confident in terms of, okay, you know, when we're, when we're analyzing images, are we, you know, saying something meaningful? And, um, you know, right now we're going through a, a manual coding process to check the validity of our results to see, okay, well, you know, if we have a set of coders rate a thousand images, you know, what is their inter-rater reliability? You know, according to what that reliability is, it can provide a theoretical maximum of what we might expect the model's accuracy to be. And so then that can tell us, okay, this is where we are and this is where the, the, the spaces for improvement could be. And then we'll take it to language vision models. Sometimes people say, well, you know, what is your prescription? What are your suggestions? And I want to be very clear that we are saying nothing about optimal representation. This is not a scorecard system. It's an awareness system. I'm a scholar and information is power. I'm dedicated to providing new insights and information based on rigorous evidence-based work. And this is just another tool in the toolbox to be able to make decisions. And it's helping to provide new information that we haven't previously had at our fingertips, but that can inform policy. One aspect of your results that I personally found really fascinating is really what you're trying to do when you are combining these different dimensions of demographics to explain how representation has evolved in children's book in the U.S. And we often talk in econ about the need to promote more intersectional approaches. And what are your main lessons working on this project? And what do you think are important takeaways that we should think about for, for future research? We certainly see that when books are explicitly centering a given identity, it was surprising to us that they were not necessarily then centering other marginalized identities as well. And so, you know, we do still have a long way to go that when, um, so for example, in images, you do see over time, females are more represented than you might expect, especially going back, you know, several decades, um, but they're predominantly white women. Uh, and similarly, when you look at geographic heterogeneity, you know, while there is some representation outside of, you know, the U.S. or Western Europe, it is predominantly males. And so there is a lot of room for people just to be more aware and more thoughtful about what representation is being put out there and how people are being represented. And so, you know, in future work or in ongoing work, we're actually trying to apply these tools to understand how people are represented and in particularly thinking about uh, intersectionality. So before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you if you had any recommendation for our listeners, of a book, movie, or anything you would like to share with us. There are so many, uh, but I would recommend finding something that speaks to one's soul, 
that gives voice to those questions that reside deep within you, that helps illuminate the world from others' eyes. And for me, one recommendation is Nayira Wahid's Salt. She distills complex truths in a succinct, elegant way. Her poems place you, or they place me, in the humanity of those whose voices are often not represented, whose viewpoints are often neglected. She writes, never trust anyone who says they do not see color. This means to them, you are invisible. You know, her writings serve as a reminder that our work is a reflection of the fires that fuel us, a search for the truth, our own truth, and that if you're drawn to such inquiry, that it may also serve as a bridge for others' inquiry. And we are really privileged in our work to be able to help serve as bridges in our research. She speaks to this when she says, there's there's one last um, saying that she says, if I write what you may feel but cannot say, it does not make me a poet. It makes me a bridge. And I am humbled and I am grateful to assist your heart in speaking. Thank you so much, Anjali. Thank you so much for being back with us. This is great. Thank you so much for having me. This was, uh, this was great. This was lovely to, to talk with you. This was Inequality Talks, a podcast recorded by Clémentine Vanefanter in Toronto. Music is by The Count. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode. 